Hello and welcome back to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. This is the third installment of our specially themed podcast sharing some of the narrator blogs we've published throughout the year. I'm Adam Smith, I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher at University College London and it's my pleasure to be introducing these shows. So far this week, we've absorbed some science, shared some tips for new researchers, but today it's all about people living with dementia, who should be at the heart of all our research endeavours. We're going to hear about the importance of patient and public involvement, and hear how researchers adapted to ensure they can keep research going, even when qualitative research moves online. Our first blog comes from PhD student Bethany McLaughlin from the University of Warwick. Bethany is exploring how virtual and in-person dementia support groups compare, and in this blog she shares her experience of conducting interviews online. It was first published in February. Like many PhD students, I've had to rethink my research plans due to the impact of COVID-19. Before the pandemic, I planned to develop an online support group intervention for carers of people with dementia and compare this intervention to a face-to-face support group. However, because of COVID-19, it became unsafe for support groups to meet face-to-face and online support groups became a very common alternative. This created an opportunity to study all of the existing support groups that have moved online and explore what carers do and don't enjoy about them. So I designed an online questionnaire and planned to interview a subset of participants to ask them about their experiences with online support groups. I was able to start collecting data at the end of January. I didn't have much experience with conducting qualitative research prior to this study. And although I knew that qualitative data is a lot more time consuming to handle, I wasn't entirely sure of how long this process would take or if there would be complications that come with doing interviews online. As other students and early career researchers in a similar position to me, and may be considering doing online interviews for the first time, I wanted to write a quick rundown of the steps involved to give you an idea of where to start and what you're getting yourself into. Scheduling online interviews is a little easier than physical ones, as there's no need to find a place to meet or to travel to the interview. Although it can still be difficult because carers of people with dementia can be very busy, especially as they might lack respite care due to the lockdown. This means that you need to be flexible when organising interviews, such as working outside of normal work hours, and you may need to reschedule at the last minute. Collecting consent forms online has been much harder than taking consent in person. Many of your participants won't be used to signing things online, so make sure you account for needing extra time to explain to your participants how they can do this. The interviews that I am conducting last 45 to 60 minutes and are done through Microsoft Teams due to data protection requirements. Although my participants have all been using video calling software to participate in support groups, most are new to Teams and I have needed to prepare extra time for them to join the meeting. However, using Teams does make it really easy to record the interview and you don't have to worry about your recording device suddenly breaking like you would during a face-to-face interview. If you are concerned about your participant population struggling with the new software, it may be better to consider conducting your interviews over the phone. Now that you've done the interview, the really time-consuming bit begins. After the interview, I download the recording and use the Microsoft Word transcription feature to get a transcript. This tool is not perfect, and it's especially bad at figuring out strong accents. After using the automatic transcription, I then spend about four hours listening to the recording and going through the transcript to correct it. 
as well as making notes about emerging themes in the interview. Once the transcript is done, you can put it into InVivo or similar qualitative data analysis software to code your data, which involves highlighting key themes and ideas. It takes me about one hour to code each transcript. So, altogether, this process takes about seven hours per participant before the analysis and write-up even begins. If you're aiming for 20 participants, that's 140 hours of work. So this past month has involved many long hours of gruelling hard work. At the same time, it's been fascinating to hear about and examine the experiences of my participants. And I found it really rewarding thinking about the ways in which all of this work can potentially lead to making things better for these carers. In the blog post, you can find a link to a website where you can find out more about my study. If you're new to qualitative research, you may also enjoy a podcast series we published earlier this year called Methods Matter. The series included a great show with Dr. Jemima Dooley and Dr. Karen Hughes on conducting qualitative interviews. Do check it out. In our next blog, we hear from our regular contributor, Dr. Clarissa Glebel from the University of Liverpool. Clarissa was incredibly quick to respond to the impact of the pandemic and to gear up to researching the effects of safety measures on people living with dementia. This blog is titled, Taking Research Out of Its Bubble. In the time of COVID-19, and now being in lockdown 2.0, remote working and meeting has become the norm. What's becoming really fun is when you have back-to-back meetings and you barely have time to make a cup of green tea in between. Doing everything remotely these days within research, it can sometimes be difficult making sure that our work doesn't just stay within the research bubble, but actually reaches people. Since the pandemic, we've had to quickly adapt and, for example, turn seminars into webinars and engage with our public advisors however is best for them. Telephone, Skype, Zoom or good old post. So what can we do with our research and take it out of its bubble, also known as the published paper? We can do all sorts of things to both reach a wider audience and try and create some impact with our work. For example, we can write a blog, such as for this one, make videos, use social media, create lay summaries, or give a talk. It really depends on your work and what fits best and who you would like to reach. Considering the topical nature of COVID-19 and the effects on people with dementia and care home residents in particular, we wanted to make sure that our work so far into this nasty virus and social support services for dementia doesn't just stay published in a paper. We showed that people with dementia seem to deteriorate faster in lockdown one, but also how much COVID-19 related social support service closures have impacted on the mental health of people with dementia and carers. People didn't get much support anymore, not that they received much before the pandemic necessarily, but everything counts. People suffered, unpaid carers took on additional caring duties and became overburdened. Whilst we shared these early findings in one of our regular Liverpool Dementia and Aging Research Fora, created lay summaries, used social media and roadblocks, I also thought it important to try and discuss how we can translate these findings into real-life benefits. Our findings were incredibly negative and downbeat, 
so trying to do something positive with them felt even more important. That's why I organised a remote workshop on how to adapt social support services during the pandemic. Around 30 different providers from clinical and third sector backgrounds attended, as well as family carers. We've heard from three different service providers, including the Louis Buddy Society and the Brain Charity, about how the pandemic has affected their ability to provide support. We all went into breakout rooms and discussed experiences and tried to come up with some key elements of how to enable service provision during COVID. Across the groups, we came up with five key elements. Flexibility, taking an individual approach, using all possible channels of providing information and support, being available, and support with using internet-based services. Service providers and family carers suggested to be as flexible with ways of supporting people as possible, which could involve using phone calls, Skype, letters or videos, for example. And given the high level of digital illiteracy in older adults, attendees expressed a need for support in using the internet. This can obviously be a tricky issue, but something that really needs to get a lot more attention within the social care sector and more support from government. Our summary leaflet is published online if you fancy having a proper read. Holding such a workshop was a really nice way to have a wider think about that huge question, so what? Why do we do research? This has helped at least a little bit to take that next step. But there's only so much as researchers can do. What is really needed now is for the government to take much better notice and actively support social care and those at the receiving end better. Hopefully MPs will debate this topic well next week, Thursday on the 12th of November in the House of Commons. Some tips to help you get your research out of its academic bubble include write a blog, use social media to share, produce a lay summary, be creative and make a video, present at a conference, give a seminar, look out for pop science events such as Pint of Science, talk to your friends and family about it, It's a great way to describe your work in non-academic terms. And to take that next step, hold a workshop and start translating evidence into practice. Clarissa has published lots over the last year. So if you're interested in learning about the impact of the pandemic on social care, do take a look. She's also started a podcast and a research group, and her passion is incredible. Our third blog, we hear from Dr. Anna Volkmer, who is a senior research fellow and speech and language therapist at UCL. This blog was first published in July, and it's appropriately titled, Including the Voices of People Living with Dementia. As a novice researcher, I embarked on a research career highly motivated to gather as much knowledge, advice and wisdom from others as I could. This included searching for guidance on how to do patient and public involvement, or PPI. My NIHR doctoral research fellowship application had included a whole section on PPI, and I had a plan to work with people with dementia and their families to do this. So I started out on a quest for information on how to do PPI with people with communication and cognitive difficulties. The initial phase of my quest provided some really helpful starting points. I sought guidance from official organisations such as Involve, 
which provided lots of practical information on how to set up a steering committee, for example, or the terms of reference for these groups. Involve highlighted the breadth of types of things people could collaborate on and how. It sounds silly, but actually one of the most useful things that I got from Involve is that they emphasise the added value of PPI. And this includes making sure that people are appropriately reimbursed, being able to reimburse travel, buy refreshments, pay people for their time is really important. And the cost calculator on the Involve website makes it inarguable. By making provision for this, it all becomes more important. And if we pay someone for their time, it must be valuable. The one thing I could not find was guidance on how to do PPI work specifically with people with any type of communication difficulty. I even attended a training meeting looking for guidance specifically on this type of PPI work, expecting to be pointed to some really obvious resource I'd not yet heard about. But what I received was doubting looks and comments suggesting it just wasn't doable. In fact, I was at one point advised that it might be a little bit too difficult. After this, I sought guidance closer to home within the speech and language therapy community. I realised that there might be people right on my doorstep who knew about communication and could offer me more bespoke guidance. So I approached a speech and language therapist who'd been instrumental in establishing a well-known third sector organisation for people with stroke-related communication difficulties. And I asked her for individualised guidance and advice on this type of work. And she and I met three times per annum over the course of my PhD and discussed my PPI work step by step as it evolved over the course of my project. So what did I do? I invited four couples where one person had a language-led dementia, primary progressive aphasia, and their partners to a steering group, my steering group, our steering group. It was extremely important to include their partners given the communication support that the partners could offer. Secondly, their partners were also living with this diagnosis and could provide an additional insight for the study. I also chose to include two professionals who were interested in the project, but who could support the communication of other group members. The first port of call was to establish a set of group rules outlining how we would communicate with each other. We pooled ideas from group members, including the use of communication cards that we would all use or, or hold up and show when we wanted to ask a question or we wanted the meeting to slow down or we needed to ask for repetitions and so forth. All group members agreed to use the cards. We all needed to go at the same pace together. I also circulated agendas in advance of every meeting and discussed some topics individually with people before we all met as a group. This meant people had time to plan and consider their answers. And at every meeting, <coughs> we would recap on the work we'd done to date. The following provides a list of key tips and hints that we collated as a group. The first tip was around circulating this agenda and minutes. We developed these in an accessible way and it made people feel valued. Taking a photo of group members at every meeting and including these in the meeting minutes and agendas 
provided consistency, presenting a summary of the project on slides at the start of every meeting and including these in the minutes and, agended in the, and agendas, made sure we were all on the same page. Using the same images and layout throughout, so on the slides, on the agendas, on the minutes, facilitated comprehension. Meeting face to face, sitting in an open circle and having time for refreshments before we started work was essential to establishing rapport and supporting communication at every stage of the project. And, of course, as people's communication difficulties evolved and changed. When we discussed topics, we all agreed that the floor should be open to people with PPA or primary progressive aphasia first before other group members. This ensured that their voices were heard. We planned out work on the project together by using voting systems. So we used post-it notes and placed them on a timeline to vote when we should do the work. This meant that the group owned the work we did together. On occasion, we planned to bring things to the group to support a brainstorm. And we did this using photos or objects or even drawings. In fact, often we draw large brainstorms in the meeting, meaning that people could actually understand the conversation as it happened and write things down or draw them if they needed to do so within the conversations to support communication. Finally, we also agreed to video record all our meetings so that no one needed to spend time writing minutes and we could all focus on talking together. I've now started to meet more and more researchers who are finding this entire process very challenging and want to share the resources and ideas and methods for PPI that they've often co-produced with people with communication difficulties. We're in the process of putting together some of these resources to this end, so watch this space. Working with communication, people with communication and cognitive difficulties is possible with the right strategies in place to support the process. That list of tips really was great and a fantastic overview of just how you can involve and maintain involvement of people living with dementia from the earliest stages of research right through to the end. Anna writes for us every month, so be sure to register on our website so you get an alert for all of her contributions. Our last blog today comes from Dr Sarah Griffiths, who is also at UCL, but was at the University of Plymouth when her and her colleague Dr Hannah Wheat wrote this blog back in January. This incredible blog shares some of the learning from the NIHR DPACT project and really is a one-on-one on what they learned about online interview practice. Hannah and I are research fellows on the NIHR funded Dementia Person Aligned Care Team or DPACT project. We've added a link to the project in the written blog. The project aims to develop and evaluate a person-centred dementia support worker intervention based in primary care. Interviewing people with dementia and carers about their experiences of receiving the support intervention 
has substantially informed our learning during the feasibility phase. In May 2019, I wrote a blog for The Dementia Researcher, which explored challenges of enabling people with dementia to meaningfully participate in qualitative research. Since then, further challenges and opportunities have emerged due to COVID-19. The team have had to rapidly adapt the DPACT intervention to enable remote delivery and switch to remote rather than face-to-face -face data collection processes. In this current blog, we share our reflections on the challenges that remote interviewing caused and practices that address these. It's our hope that this blog may foster further discussion about suitable, helpful approaches to interviewing people with dementia and carers, both during the pandemic, but also during more normal times too. We cover our reflections on five main areas. Number one, remote conversations can be tiring, especially for people with dementia. We've all noticed that communicating virtually is more tiring than face-to-face. -face. And some have suggested this is because we miss out on a lot of subtle non-verbal communication that allows us to process other people's motivations, emotions, and so on. We provide a link in the written blog to a TED Ideas article on why video calls might be so draining. For people with dementia who already have difficulties with language processing, this feeling of hard work and fatigue is likely to be amplified. We found it was even more necessary to take a flexible approach, which involved being prepared to reschedule the interview, take more breaks than normal, and to substantially cut down the length of the interview if necessary to do so. To be able to react in this way, we put more time aside for the interview and identified key questions that would need to be prioritised. During the interview, we also maintained a relaxed approach, reassuring carers that if the person with dementia wanted to wander away from the communication device at any time, which often happened. This was absolutely fine. Number two, researchers rushing the interview due to time pressures. When interviewing remotely, it can be tempting to rush the everyday conversation aspects of the interview so that the business of the interview can be conducted before people get tired. To counteract this, it can be helpful to have a pre-interview remote call. During this first call, it can be made explicit that this initial conversation is about getting to know each other, discussing what the interview might involve, and planning a date and time, showing a warm and genuine interest in how things are, how people have been coping in these unusual and isolating times, their pasts, interests, and values, brings a sense of normality. Interviewees often report to us that in this often frightening era, the dementia support worker has provided a vital link to make them feel normal again, as well as less lonely. We hope to mirror this sense of person-centeredness in our own researcher interactions with people with dementia and carers. In line with the coaching approach that is core to the DPACT intervention, we aim to make the delivery of research questions seem less like running through a checklist and instead feel part of a natural conversation. In some ways, this is much easier to achieve remotely when interviewees can't see you looking at an interview topic guide. Number three, distress caused by interviewers speaking to carers on their own. There have been some triad interviews, researcher, person with dementia and carer, where we've spoken with participants one at a time. In one instance, this approach had been agreed at an initial phone call and the carer started talking to the interviewer first. However, the person with dementia became distressed, worrying over what was being talked about. The interviewer suggested that the carer swapped, letting the person with dementia talk first. A very general conversation, as specific interview questions were difficult in this case. Once this had happened, the person with dementia was happy to leave the carer to it. 
it's important to adapt to what's happening in the moment. Number four, communication difficulties. In face-to-face -face interviews, using visual resources is often essential for explaining the interview purpose. For instance, showing a photo of the dementia support worker and writing down key phrases like, how is it going with the support worker? How has the support worker helped you? What is good or not good? Otherwise, some people with dementia can get confused about the purpose. In one case, we soon realised that a person with dementia thought that the researcher was there to provide support for him, rather than find out about the support he was receiving, which is quite an abstract concept. He exclaimed mid-interview, this just isn't helping me. Use of visual resources is most effective when face-to-face, -face, sitting alongside and looking at and pointing to the same things. Supporting conversations in this way has proved really challenging remotely. To try and counteract this, we've sent materials in advance, but this did mean that the spontaneity of being able to quickly write a keyword, draw a simple picture, or point to something in the media environment to support comprehension was lost. Sharing of resources in the moment is an area that we would argue needs better digital solutions, which would be beneficial for practitioners as well as researchers. Where possible, we try to enable people to engage with practitioners and researchers via video. Although there are many ways in which remote interviews might be inferior to face-to-face -face ones, if the comparison is between the two approaches in COVID times, a huge advantage of remote video interactions is that no one has to wear a mask, so facial expressions become available and potentially people look less scary. No one has to worry about whether the person with dementia is able to observe social distancing. Not everyone has internet access, however, so some interviews have had to take place by phone. This made it difficult to gauge how people were feeling, tired, confused, engaged, etc., through observing and mirroring non-verbal communication, exchanging smiles and so on. Adapting to hearing difficulties is also more difficult when visual cues are removed, and we needed to be mindful that speaking louder is not a good strategy in this situation. It can lead to exaggerated, hard-to-understand speech. Also, sounds typically hard to hear are voiceless, like s, sh, and f, and will not be enhanced by increased volume. In phone interviews, we've had to try and compensate for the complete lack of visual feedback by ramping up linguistic methods, like, was that clear? Let me know if you're getting tired, etc. Sometimes participants are happy to use the loudspeaker function so that a three-way conversation can take place. In some cases, this works well, with the carer allowing space and offering support for the person with dementia to contribute. In other cases, this can prove difficult, especially where there is much simultaneous talking, making transcription tricky. Finally, number five, imbalanced perspectives and triadic interviews. During face-to-face -face interviews in people's homes, we found opportunities to obtain individual interviewee perspectives, even during triadic interviews. Important and personal information might be revealed when one participant has gone to make a cup of tea, or when showing the research to the door at the end of the interview. This can help interviewers gain different insights and provide opportunities to probe a little more without fear of upsetting the other participant. Remote interviews do not lend themselves so readily to these opportune moments, even though at times the interviewer may sense that there are perspectives left unexplored, as the following researcher reflection highlights. Researcher reflection. It struck me there may be things the daughter wanted to say without mum present, 
She did speak a little of her own past tendency to control things and make sure her mum was presenting all the facts correctly and how she has learnt to let go of that since talking to the dementia support worker. However, I think she saw her role in the interview as solely to support her mum, even though I emphasise that we are interested in both their views. I thought she might want to say more about the impact of the dementia support worker for both of them, so I asked if she would like to email me after the interview if she thought of anything else she wanted to say. I stress that this offer was for both of them via the daughter emailing. Since this interview, we've routinely offered the option of post-interview emails in order to leave the door open to further reflections. However, we're aware that this could privilege care reviews as they are often more able to take up the offer. As our study progresses, we continue to explore ways of enhancing involvement and engagement of people with dementia and carers in the qualitative research aspects. We hope that sharing these insights will contribute to planning a future with remote interviewing methods very much here to stay. Thank you to Sarah and Hannah for sharing. That really was a comprehensive overview. That's all we've got time for today. We have two more shows to end this series, so we'll be back tomorrow with more great blogs from our 2021 archive. Thank you for listening. Join the Dementia Research bloggers and share your own views.